Good morning and welcome to Sport and Life with Sam Kekovich and Leon Wigard. It's been some time, Sam. It has, Leon, but for obvious reasons. We've got the grand final behind us. We all had hectic schedules. So Did you play? Uh, not in this one, Leon. No. <laughs> Have you ever played in the grand final? Oh, Leon, please manifest modesty will preclude me elaborating, but uh, I'm sure you're aware that I spent a lot of time around Brutton Avenue. Uh <laughs> what were they like in there? The horse and cart or <laughs> God, see, you're so It'd be bitter. A track. Brunton Avenue would be a track. Look, uh, look, I know Fitzroy was very close to your heart. 1944. Well, when they became more abundant, that was extinct <laughs> under your stewardship. You've never been the same person. So you've always, you have great difficulty in heaping praise on anyone else that's been to the mountaintop. Now, talking about the grand final. Yes. Wouldn't you think the AFL... With all the money they got in the world, oh. could by the umpires a whistle actually worked? There's a good point. It's always the minor detail that always catches them out, isn't it? Yep. The fundamentals and how how difficult is it to find a pea and put it into a little slot? Well, it's very hard to get one at the MCG on Grand Final Day. <laughs> yeah. Where would you go? <laughs> it was a big long queue. It is. <laughs> I love your work, see? You haven't lost it. No. Uh, anyway, uh, we've got a very special guest today, but before I do that, I'm intrigued with this hotel we do this at. This is called the uh, Prince of Wales. It's owned by Jerry Ryan and his son, Andrew. Very and, good friend and, of ours. And it's a wonderful establishment, of course. Uh, but on the corner now, they've got a big, big sign saying, Spring Wine Sale. Mm. Now, how lucky are they? They've found a spring that produces wine. Wine. That's how good they're going. That's how good they're going, how well they're going. Yes, a spring with wine. Spring when wine sale. Yeah, when you talk of springs and, you you know, you talk about, you know. Hepburn Springs. Well, Hepburn Springs come to mind immediately, but also, you know, in the remote areas we talk about bore water, we talk about, you know, where the, uh, where the tableland is, uh, we talk about the salt. Where am I going with this, Leon? I don't uh, know, but, I don't know, I, but... The, the word bore came out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on with that. Eternal our... spring. <laughs> now, Leon, can I ask you a question? What, what, what? what? Just off the air without, without notice. Now, it would be fair to say, would it not? What are some of the most boring things you'd find in life? Oh, you know, well, let's Some say, of the things. Well, there'd be a marathon and an ultramarathon. Well, could you, I've often pondered the thought, you know, I've cogitated at length, you know, what constitutes... You know, the power of the mind. You know, both of us have been in sport at the highest level. And, of course, the power of the mind is a very prevalent uh, topic that comes up to mind. It comes up to the uh, uh, speed often because, you know, your capacity to be able to, you know, to have that strength of mind is, a, is an imperative in, in, uh, in reaching the apex. And I've always – I, for one, have always been a, uh, a sprinter, you know, short and quick bursts. And always, you know, the capacity to always turn around quickly. And I've often wondered, you know, what goes through the mind of a marathoner or someone that's engaged in a in, in something that takes an eternity to get through. And I could never quite rationalise it. Well, let's ask a bloke that has 
does uh, that? Oh, we've got one on the line. Well, he's now in the veteran stage of life, but of course he's well known to everybody, a fantastic bloke. Steve Monaghetti joining Ooh. us from Ballarat. Uh, Steve, good morning. You heard all that diatribe, so uh, <laughs> apologise for that. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I can say – hi, Leon. Hi, Sam. I, I can say one thing, though. It's interesting. We all sort of start off wanting to win the 100-metre sprint. That is the fact because that's sort of the blue ribbon event. So we all start out being sprinters, but some of us are no good at sprinting and someone taps us on the shoulder and says, run a bit further. You know, keep going. And eventually you keep going far enough and the longest Olympic running distance happens to be the marathon and that's where I ended up. So it was only because I was so slow, so far behind Sam in the sprint that they pushed me out to that long-distance event that we now know is called the marathon. Yeah, but there's a limit to how far you keep going. I'm going to say Christopher Columbus nearly tipped... Nearly went off the edge of the pl- edge of the earth. But he didn't run. He did well. He was. Well, <laughs> no, the boat a, didn't go as fast as he's it. He's on a boat. That's right. <laughs> hey, hey, Steve, you, you actually um, na- made your early name, if you like, for five and ten thousand metres, though, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. And again, um, you know, not downplaying because recreational running is absolutely booming. But from a from an athletics, a purist perspective, where you run. Uh, where you get selected for teams and where you run your personal best times are on the track. So it, it's the only real measure distance. I mean, we'll talk about it later. You know, we, we had a world record um, recently on the road. But technically, they are there, there's sort of some anomalies with running on the road. Could be, you know, downhill. It's not allowed to have a little bit of downhill. It could be windy, a favourable wind, a headwind. Could go around a few bends. Whereas on a 400-metre track, it is measured as 400 metres, so it is really the only place that you can run personal bests and records. So I did start out on the track every – or most um, athletics people, you know, you do it at school, run school sports, join a club and go down the track and do some track running in the summer and cross-country in the winter, and I was no different. And, in fact, I made my first international team, Commonwealth Games, in 1986 as a 10,000-metre runner. That's what – People sort of forget, and I got an opportunity then to run in the marathon, and the rest is history. But it certainly was a 10K on the track that I, I made that team for, absolutely. Actually, Steve, I was being a bit facetious because I fell in love, not that I was any good at it, but I fell in love with uh, long-distance <laughs> running, only because one of my mentors uh, in my early days at North Melbourne uh, when Brian Dixon was appointed coach was Ron Clark, and Ron Clark used to pick me up and we used to go for a run. Now... I could run about two, three k. Ronald would run it backwards, but <laughs> but in those early days, I looked at Ron Clark and I really admired him immensely, and I followed a lot, a, of the, a lot of the lot of amazing fellow. And um, I got to know Ron pretty well, and he was so generous. I remember going to his gym in um, London at Cannons under the railway bridges, just on the marathon course in London, and he was he just wanted to. Well, I didn't get too much weight work done, Sam. As you know, Ron loved to chat. So we were chatting, running. We weren't doing too much. I didn't like weights anyway, so I was happy. Now, Steve, uh, just before we go on to your athletic career, I hadn't realised until I did our exhaustive research for this show uh, that you have a degree in civil engineering. Whatever happened to that? Didn't pay. You found that out in five minutes of exhaustive research. You've done pretty well. That's amazing, Leon. Well done. No, I, I must I have flipped a couple of pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did an engineering degree in Ballarat. I actually initially got into a, 
I wasn't great academically, to be honest. I was um, I was good early on at um, St Pat's in Ballarat, and then sort of got to use eight, nine when you have to do a bit of work, and I wasn't um, all that keen. I was off running. So, but then I so I got I actually was going to be a phys ed teacher. And my older brother said, "Look, you you know you've got some pretty good marks here. Why don't we chat to the engineering department out at the Uni of Ballarat?" And out I went and got into the um, engineering course there, and I actually. I, I truly wanted to be a mining engineer, and um, but unfortunately my running sort of took off, and it was a combined the first couple of years mining and civil were the same, so I ended up sticking to the civil engineering stream and finished that in four years, 1980 to 84, 81 to 84, and then went and worked as an engineer for a year in the Shire of Ballarat. Oh, you did. So, uh, tell tell us about Monaghetti itself, the name. Uh, have you tracked it down? Obviously, yes, Italian. Yeah, Roger Federer. I've got a great story. How long have we got? I've got a great story about. Yeah, no, carry sorry. on. Carry on. You got. In '85, I went to a world cross country, and it happened to be um, in Switzerland. And Switzerland. we decided just beforehand we'd go on a bit of a trip up to um, cross the Italian border and up into um, um, Switzerland. And um, we went to a place, and I, I, I jumped on the train, went a little bit further, and. My family had done, my brother had done a bit of research and apparently we come from a place sort of just over the um, Italian border, a place called Balanzana. So I went there, walked up the street to this suburb called Monte Caressa. No one there, no one spoke English. So I went to into the telephone box, In this is how long it was, they had telephone booths back then and looked up the telephone book and sure enough there was about five pages of Monaghetti. So I ripped the pages out, brought them home and... As um, as it turns out, uh, then when I became well known, the family wrote. They saw an article in Le Keep, the famous um, French sporting magazine, and they saw an article on me. And one of my rallies wrote to us and said, "Oh, you know, we're following your career, and you know, congratulations, all that's blah blah blah." Anyway, Tang and I, my wife Tang and I, went over and we visited them um, when I was over in Europe for a trip and had a great time and caught up with them, and then. Finally, in 1999, after the Seville World Championships, we took my mum and dad, and dad, you know, it was dad's grandfather who emigrated to Australia in the 1850s on the back of the gold rush. So I took mum and dad back and we went to Monte Caressa. They closed the town down. We had a big celebration. We were eating and drinking, um, grappa, and had a great time. And at about 10 o'clock that night, jumped in the car and drove back to where we were staying and we're halfway along the drive and Dad was in his in his 70s at the time and he said, if I die tomorrow, I die a happy man because I'd taken him back to where his family had come from and it was a, just a, such an emotional moment for me. So that's the history. The Monaghetti's come from a little suburb called Monte Caressa just outside of Balanzona in, on the Swiss-Italian border. Ah, interesting. Roger Federer, uh, not far away, you get the... You get the mandatory cow every week, every year, do you, present it to you? Yeah, get the, the cow bells. The cow bells, they're the, the ones. <laughs> now, uh, the other thing about you, Steve, is that you weren't much chop at little athletics. No, it was no good. And that's true. And talking about my dad, and I tell this story, I, you know, he was he worked on the Shire of Ballarat. My dad was a garbage truck driver, so we were... Big, big motor. <laughs> <laughs> not, not an enormously wealthy family, but just a um, salt of the earth family. And he took me down. He's working on the show and took me down to Wendaree Athletics Oval and they had a little athletics um, program running there. And 
I wasn't. I was a, just a little fellow. I was always pretty small and light and um, had a go at everything, but I couldn't sprint, couldn't throw, couldn't jump. So things weren't looking all that good. And remember, Dad came and picked me up after about six weeks and the person who was taking us, who remained nameless, came over and said to Dad, knocked on the window, Dad wound down the window and he said, oh, look, Mr Monaghan, I wouldn't but worry about bringing Steve back. I don't think he'll be any, ever any good at athletics. <laughs> I reckon four Olympics... Four Commonwealth Games and six World Championships later, I think I probably did okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you've been vindicated there. Steve, just yeah. tell me, marathon running, I mean, to so say when you started out, obviously you were just, you know, hell for leather and uh, you do it the, to the best of your ability. But, of course, a lot of strategy employed over the years become far more sophisticated. Uh, when did you realise that marathon running was going to be your bag? And when did you realise that, you know, you needed some assistance in terms of you know, strategy in, in terms of coaching. Yeah, that was the significant moment for that, Sam, was um, I, I changed coaches. So Tony Benson was coaching me here in Ballarat, my year nine English teacher and famous Olympian from Ballarat. And um, he'd sort of gone to the Philippines and I just lost my way a little bit and had a bad race at a world cross-country race up in, a trial race up in Sydney in 1983, Centennial Park. And we're down at Bronte Beach and sort of wallowing in our sorrows of not running very well and a, a guy called Rod O'Connor sitting next to me he said, you sound a bit sort of disillusioned with your coaching. I've got a really good coach, um, Chris Wardlaw. Why don't you have a chat to him? And so I did and I changed coaches and Chris started coaching me and he very quickly got me focused on the marathon. But he made me realise that I needed to get quicker on the track and to his credit, that's where it sort of all began. I got faster on the track to the stage where I then, knowing I would be a marathon runner eventually, the speed that I gained on the track through Chris's coaching put me in the in the framework for getting selected for an, a marathon. Up until then, I was probably just going to be a sort of solid marathon runner, but not make Australian teams. So his philosophy, getting me on the track, getting me <coughs> fast, and as I say, I've then progressed to Commonwealth Games as a 10,000 metre runner, but Chris, and this is a true story, about three months before that team went to Edinburgh in 86, he rang me up and he said, oh, look, I've had a look at the team and there's a, a vacancy in the men's marathon. What about I talk to Athletics Australia and see if we can get you in, in the marathon? It's going to be six days after the 10K. You don't have to change your training, just jump in the race, have a bit of a run around and as a bit of a practice run, we know you're going to be a marathon runner eventually, so why don't we do that? And he rang Athletics Australia and got me in and, Ended up winning a bronze medal in the marathon, believe it or not. So the rest is history. Steve, uh, I mentioned Ron Clark earlier. You and this is interesting because I remember this race so very clearly. But uh, a pivotal moment in time for you was you got hooked on marathon running was in the Montreal Olympics in '76 when a guy called uh, Waldemir Sapinski beat Frank Shorter. Now I remember Frank Shorter very vividly because he was the American. He was the world record holder for the marathon. But something sort of triggered, you know, your desire to become a marathoner. It did. And I unfortunately had the opportunity to meet Frank Shorter. And he was the legend. It's interesting. People ask me, you know, who are the, who are your sort of, who are your idols growing up? Well, I always called on two people, and that was a BB Bikila and Walden Marchapinski, because they won two Olympic marathons, men's marathons. Now, you can get lucky once, boys, but you can't get lucky twice. If you win them back-to-back -back like those two did, then you're a pretty special athlete. 
now. While the Machapinski of whilst I never got to meet him, you know, he was one of the guys that certainly had a strong influence on my career. Because, you know, I was growing up a young kid in downtown Ballarat and watching the Olympic Games, as we all did, and that event always fascinated me. And um, little did I know it would have such an impact on my life. But it's those significant moments that just plant a seed in your mind and, you know, it just means... You're just a bit more dedicated in your training, a bit more committed, and you've got that dream, that carrot waiting there for you. And um, yeah, he was a, he was had a strong impact because I could see his performances at the Olympic Games, and it's one of the reasons. You know, I ran 22 marathons across my international career, but I think 12 of them were for my country, for no money, no just you know just the pride wearing that Australian singlet and I've always been really strong on representing your country you know you can go around the world you can run marathons you can run do sporting events everywhere but you you don't often have the opportunity to put on an Australian singlet so mm. when I did I respected that and I did the best I possibly could whether my result was good bad or indifferent I did the best I possibly could because I was wearing that Australian singlet and that's what the Olympics Commonwealth Games and World Championships always meant to me just briefly on Frank Shorter, he won a gold medal too in the Olympics, didn't he? Yeah, in 72. Yeah, That's right, did. Munich. Uh, yeah, so the old memory sells out. Now, I wanted to talk about Chris uh, Wardlaw, a very yes. unusual cat. Now, <laughs> now, Chris Wardlaw wanted to be coach of Collingwood at one stage because he thought that league footballers didn't quite understand about fitness and training regimes and all that sort of stuff. Um, would that be unusual of a bloke like Chris? <laughs> yeah, very unusual. Him and Tim O'Shaughnessy, they actually put a, put a proposal. They applied. They literally applied. It wasn't just a joke. They actually applied for the job. And no, Chris is a, I think we balance each other up very well. He, uh, he's, he's, um, he's got, he's very creative. I think he's just a different cat, like you'd say, Leon. And I'm a pretty straight up sort of, I say focus. My family says anal. I don't think that's a compliment. But, um, it was a good combination because I remember I've still got copies of training programs written out on the back of a serviette, the um, back of a TAB ticket betting slip on the, on yeah. an invitation. You know, we might have been at a, at a wedding together and he'd write some training down on the back of the wedding invitation, just stuff like that. He, and, um, but it just worked so well. He was in Melbourne. I was in Ballarat. You know, I had um, the uh, the chance to own my training and he just sort of supervised and oversaw it and it was just a match made heaven. And he's still my coach, he will be my coach forever and now he's just a great mentor and personal friend and it's nice to have that ongoing relationship. But such a significant player in the success that I had. You know, I, I do the running run, sees the accolades that I get. Now, you know, I think you've you probably heard the story because he went to two Olympics himself. I think he was, until recently, the... The only person who made the final of the 10,000 metre event at the Olympic Games, I think in 76, ran a couple of Olympic marathons. And he, he, he says, when he speaks, he said, I used to be Chris Wardlaw, now I'm Steve Monigetti's coach. So, yeah. so he lost his identity. <laughs> now, of all those, Steve, of all our guests, by the way, is Steve Monigetti, and you're on Sport and Life with uh, Sam Kekovich and Leon Wigar. Now, um, the. the the regimes that he wrote on the back of wedding invitations and all that sort of stuff. I hope that you got the one from Barcelona in '92 uh, and tore it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because after the race, it was strange. That's that's an interesting sort of um, 
race study or, or study of human nature because it was my only bad. Thanks for bringing it up, Leo. Yeah, oh, well, well, it's well crying. researched. No, I was I, I was there with the media. I was worried about your health. Yeah, and it's interesting because I, you know, I was fine. And I, I got I just hit the wall a bit. I'd I'd done a, a, a probably overdid the um, depletion diet. It was pretty hot, and I was very dehydrated before I started. We know that now, but we didn't at the time. I thought I was in great shape, and I was in great shape, but I just stuffed up that um, that last sort of week or so with my diet. Anyway, I got to halfway through the race and hit the wall and got really tired. And um, I remember there was a steep hill, you'll remember, up to the stadium at Barcelona. And um, my wife and Chris were out on the course and I wasn't looking great. And they said, oh, I'll pull out. And I said, there's no way. I looked down at my Australian singer and said, there's no way I'm pulling out the Olympic Games. Let me tell you that. And I had an interesting experience because... Douglas Wackery, and you talk about the camaraderie and across the friendships you make and the marathon's no different. And I went out pretty hard and I got a bit tired. Douglas Wackery caught me um, and he, he, rather than just going past me and running on to his sort of a, a higher placing, he said, um, I'll run with you, my friend. And we ran together for a couple of K and I was getting a bit tired. And he said, no, mate, don't sacrifice your own race. I really appreciate it. And said, off you go. And he finished oh, about 10 places ahead of me or something. But that sort of, that camaraderie, you can't replace something like that. And we've become um, friends for life because of that. Anyway, I battled up to the stadium and, and um, did finish that race. But I finished that race for no other reason than I was running for my country at the Olympic Games. And history will show I finished <clears> in 43rd place and had a terrible result. But I did the best I possibly could. And I remember we finished the race and we are having a, a debrief and there was Chris Wardlaw and Nick Bideau and Gary Henry and Pete Howley, my physio, and um, all these people that were on my support crew. And they just couldn't sort of understand why I'd run badly and they were really having a deep and meaningful. And yet I was there saying, well, I just stuffed it up. I did the best I possibly could. So I was, having been in the moment, I knew I couldn't do any more than what I'd done, but they were trying to search what mistakes they'd made and what we could do differently. But for me, that race is, I'm as proud of that race as, you know, winning the Commonwealth Games a couple of years later because on the day, you know, my body wasn't working, but my 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 commitment to running for my country at the Olympic Games was no different than the other three times I went, and for that I'm really proud. Now, Steve, I'll apologise for Leon's question there. It's a Fitzroy. It's a Fitzroy type question. All he wanted to do was for you to bring out that placing the forty third, forty third, and that resonates with the Fitzroy Football no, Club. No. And he's happy as Larry about that. So. We, we knew he was in trouble because Ian Cobra reckoned he beat him in a trial run. He did. Yeah. Ian Cobra reckoned he, yeah. he said, "Do something wrong with Monitor?" He couldn't keep up with me at training this morning. Okay. That's yeah. exactly – that is a true story, Sam. And Leon, Leon's right. Ian Cave was over there with us and um, commentator or doing a bit of stuff that could have been. And good friend, Cove. And we did go for a run on the Wednesday morning. I could not keep up with him. And he turned to Chris Wardler afterwards. He said, you're not worried about Mono. I mean, he couldn't even keep up with me. <laughs> and, um, and Chris Wardler said, no, look, mate. Leave all this technical stuff to the experts. We know. What would you know, your rank amateur? And yet he was absolutely spot on. I, I <laughs> just played it so badly. So Cove was onto it. We should have listened. Starts to add up about Cove's background. Now you end up a politician. That tells you a little bit about marathon running. Uh, <laughs> Mona, just quickly, uh, always compulsive viewing in the Olympics. A lot of sports you bypass, some you've, you watch. But the compulsive one is that last race, which is the marathon. 
It's fantastic. Now, tell me a little bit about the marathon. We know it's over 26-odd K. Or, oh, sorry, 26 mile, uh, which constantly, what is it, 40-odd K. But what are the strategies involved? Well, you go out hard for the first 10, uh, then you, you know, you have a breakaway. When do you wake up? When do you realise you've got to go for broke? Or what are the various components of and the breakdowns of a marathon? Yeah, I'll put it into context a little bit, Sam and Leon, for your listeners. Um, it's a good question because... It's the one race that you can't run fast, although they're running fast now. You can't run fast. You've got to pace yourself because, as you rightly say, it's 26 miles, 385 yards, or 42K, 195 metres. And over that, just the human body is technically running fast, not, not meant to go that far. So you have to pace yourself. It's almost like you've got a limited amount of energy. We have glycogen in your system. And what you do is... All the training we do over years and years and years, so if the three of us were to line up on the start line, my glycogen would be used more efficiently because I've trained my body to just spread it out and use it better, whereas you, your two, your glycogens would run out really quickly, and that's why you hit the wall and you get tired, and after about 10K, you'd be walking to the finish. So the challenge for us elite marathon runners was we do all this training to allow our body to become efficient at the use of glycogen. Now, if you go flat out, if, if I ran flat out for the first 10K, I would use up my glycogen and I'd be walking the last 10K. So you have to pace yourself. So, you know, I ran 60.06 for a half marathon. So if you double that, you say, well, gee, I should have ran two hours for a marathon. So I would have been the first bloke ever to run under two hours for a marathon because you double that and you just get just over two hours. But you can't run at that pace for 42K because your body runs out of glycogen. So you have to spread it out. So what you do is you slow down enough to know that you can run that even pace for the whole race. So that's why they have paces because they on in the night before in the in the technical meeting we all go okay we want to run 302 minutes per kilometre. So the paces do that for the first 35k. Hopefully they get that far. If they get tired they drop out. But then you take over and you hopefully can either pick up the pace a little bit or maintain that speed and you cross the finish line. And hopefully, just as you cross the finish line, you absolutely run out of glycogen. That's the challenge. So you have to pace yourself, and we run basically even splits. So we don't run out hard. And if someone took off in the first 5K, the rest of us in the pack would go, fantastic. Sam's ran off in the first 5K, sprinted up the road. We don't have to worry about him because he's going to be knackered. We're going to see him on the side of the road in another 5K. So you have to pace yourself and... And that's why all the training you do, there is no shortcut. No surprise winner will ever run and win the Olympic marathon because you need years of training behind you to teach your body to become efficient enough to get it across that 42.2K finish line. Steve, now that sounds wonderful in theory, but I've often (laughs) watched Olympics and I've seen the breakaway group, four or five or half a dozen, you see one of them taper off, they now next drop off, but there's yep. always one or two that keep going and they don't get reeled in. So what I'm asking you, mm-hmm. when does the degree or a modicum of panic set in? When do you realise that your game plan perhaps needs to be uh, tinkered with and I might have to take off a bit earlier? Yeah, that's it. That's another great question. And we always, Chris Wardler and I always had the, the, the plan and we'd have, you know, few weeks before we chat about what we're going to do and we had plan a and that's where you know we all run along and like you say 35k i come out of 
five or 37 and a half K drink stop and I go, right, race on, here I go, I'm feeling great, take my drink, throw it away and then kick off and I win by 100 metres running a world record. That's plan A. Then Chris Wardler and I, we had, there is no plan B because <laughs> that plan A will never work. That never, ever happens. You dream about it, you hope. But you know in the race that at about between 30 and 35K, something's going to happen and you need to be able to adapt to that. So we have the theory that it's no plan B because you can have plan B, C, D, E, F, G. Someone, a Kenyan, an African, some runner will put a spanner in the works. So be flexible enough, adaptive enough, clever enough, mentally attuned to when a real break happens, you've got to be aware of it, be on your metal, go with it, hang on and have some mental strategies. That's where it gets really mentally challenging. You know, that's where I'd look down at the emblem on my singlet and go, if it was just me, I'd stop and let these guys go. But no, I'm running for my country. I'm running for Sam. I'm running for Lee. I'm running for all my sponsors, all my supporters at home. So you draw on all those external influences to mentally keep you going. You kind of go, well, there's five of us here. Come on, just go for another one minute. Hang in for one minute. You hang in for a minute and someone drops off and you go, now there's only four of us. Hang in for another minute. So you start playing those mental I'm going for a run internally, later. While externally all these factors are going, you're, you're checking how the other runners are looking, who's going to make the break. So there's a lot happening. And, and I know you, you were joking when you're saying, you know, marathon running's boring. It's far from boring when you're out there racing. Let me tell you, there's a lot <laughs> happening internally and externally that you've got to be aware of. And you get across that finish line and hopefully you've been able to um, get that um, adaptive mentality to get you to get a, a good race result. Now, Steve, it's, uh, well, 33 years ago that you won your first marathon, I think, the Berlin Marathon, which is a biggie. Uh, yeah. Must have been some sort of a... Accolade for you to, oh, spur you on, I guess, to uh, to bigger and bigger, better things. Oh, it was massive, and it was uh, it was in 1990, and it was the reunification of Germany. So, whilst the wall came down in 1989, the marathon kicked off a week of celebration to finish with the reunification ceremony. So, it was massive, and uh, early marathon wasn't as big as it is now. It was a growing race and they wanted to get this elite field and um fortunately for me um without without dropping names but um Reebok was a race sponsor that I was sponsored and still am sponsored by Nike and Nike were really keen to um sort of ambush the race and so they were keen on me running and running well and it wasn't the marathon that people sort of chose to run but I thought oh this is going to be a significant event I went we ran through the Brandenburg Gate. We were the first people to run into East Berlin in whatever it was, 29, 30 years. So it was a very emotional moment. The, the lady who won the women's event, Uta Pippik, had defected from East Berlin. So she hadn't been home for about five years. She cried as she ran through the Brandenburg Gate and we went on to win that race and it was the fastest time in the world that year, 2.8.16, and the third, uh, 16th fastest time in history. And as it would show now, it is, they run faster than that every week. But back then it was um, massive. So there was worldwide recognition. And now Berlin Marathon's grown to be one of the biggest, probably the biggest, second, third biggest marathon in the world. And, in fact, we went back about five years ago, Tanya and myself, and um, Uta Pippig, the lady I mentioned, and myself were the inaugural members. 
in the Hall of Fame for the Berlin Marathon. So it was a great honour to go back and just reminisce about those great days back in 1990 and to see how far the Berlin Marathon's come um, in recent years to, to be such a significant event on the world stage. And, you know, I played a minor part in that back in, in those early days in 1990. What did uh, Robert Tickenstella and Derek Clayton and those sort of guys mean to you? Oh, they were huge. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to have um, Deke as sort of my mentor, that team I made in 86. He was in the marathon team. And just the way he took me under his wing, the way he I saw he deal with the media and, you know, put it in its back pocket when he needed to focus on his racing. Just I learned so many lessons from him and... Um, you know, he was the best marathon runner in the world at the time. What better person could you have? And, you know, the work he's doing now with the Indigenous Marathon Project, we've become great mates and he's just a fantastic person and role model. And, um, you know, they're the things that happen. You make friendships across the time. And I was just so fortunate to have him. And, and Derek Clayton was a guy I, I admired growing up. He's held that world record for bloody 17 years or something. And an un, little known fact is that, it was actually his, Derek Clayton's um, world record was broken by um, Alberto Salazar, but uh. history would show a couple of years later they found that the course that Alberto ran was about 200 metres short. So technically, Rob DeCostello held the world record because he ran the next fastest time at Fukuoka. Steve, tell me, uh, why is not your over-60s marathon record acknowledged by the governing body? Oh, it is. The 5K is. I haven't ran a marathon. There's a guy in Ireland. The 5K, sorry. He's ran about 2.30 for a marathon. Now, I don't I don't run marathons now because my body is just showing signs of wear and tear, so I can't I can't get that far. I, I, ran, I ran a pretty good half up on, on the Gold Coast um, earlier this year and um, ran 70, just over 73 minutes, which is... Just outside, or there's sort of world. It depends what the, the real world records are. I just run as hard as I can. If someone rings me up and says oh, I think that's a, a world record, I fill in the paperwork and accept it. But I just love challenging my body, to be honest, Sam. So I think I've got the. I think the, I had an 800 foot, a relay record, but that's subsequently been broken. But I held a. I was a part of a four by 800 meter world relay uh, world record team, and I still hold that. Five k, I ran 15:52 at Collingwood. Um, uh, December last year. That was I, even I didn't think I could run that fast as a sixty-plus person. So I take that one. I'm proud of that one. But I'm just lucky my body's allowing me to continue to run at the level that it is. You know, having punished it for about I think forty-seven years or something. I think I started when I was fourteen. I'm sixty-one. Is my maths right? It's a maths teacher. I hope it is. Forty-seven years of punishing this body. It served me well, and um, I just always I think in my legs. Oh, they've done, they're an amazing thing. The amount of mileage, you know, 200k a week for 15 years. I'm still running 70 or 80 now. Well, I reckon I've probably done about 300,000 k's in my life. So my legs have served me pretty well. Steve, uh, just for our listeners, you've just touched on it briefly then. Just give me a thumbprint over uh, insight as to the uh, week of a marathoner. What would the average right. week constitute? Yeah. Well, for me, I used to do 200k's a week when I was in full training. I, I just read Calvin Kipton broke the world record in Chicago last week. He was running 300 k's a week in the lead up to London Marathon earlier in the year, but my body couldn't sustain that. Deke was a bigger frame, and Derek, they did 
they probably did two forty two fifty k weeks. But for me, I only did only only did two hundred k's a week. But that was twice a day, every day of the year. So I'd have days where I'd only run once if I was freshening up for a race or recovering from a marathon. But in a standard week, I would run twice a day, every day. And my long run on Sunday morning was 35k in the forest around Ballarat. And I'd run another 10k that night. So that was a pretty good start to my week. Sunday, it was a, my religion was running 45k in those couple of runs in the forest around Ballarat. The rest of the week I'd do, I'd run twice easy on Monday. I'd do hard session, my fart leg session on a Tuesday night, track session, Deeks track session, the 400s on a Thursday, and I had a hill course here in Ballarat, which we call Tony Benson, was just near his house. It was Benson's hill course, and I ran that up religiously on a Saturday morning. So you put all that together, those fast sessions with the long endurance running that I did over 200 days a week, I over 8,000 k's for the year, that gets you to be a pretty good marathon run at the end of the day. Now, you're a Ballarat man through and through and uh, so is Mars Mars, they made up there, and you were the face of Mars for a while. I was, yeah. It was cre- I, I, and I was also very popular, I remember, because Mars were very, um, a great company here in Ballarat and we, we, you know, we really appreciate their support. They're a fantastic community supporter, but... Um, yeah, I, was, I did an article and I mentioned them and, and, and subsequently had a sponsorship from them for about 10 years. They're a great company. I remember they'd just send all the products out and I'd move the fruit and veg out of the um, crisper drawers in the fridge and put all the Mars products in. I became very popular. Lots of friends would come around to visit. I'm not sure I thought they were coming around because I was a good player. All they wanted was... Um, hop into the Mars products that were in the fridge. You'd have been more popular had I known you were a Mars, but I would have been up there. <laughs> hey, was there a bloke named West involved with Mars at that time? It was, yes, he was. He, he's, he's, my, he was. he's my first cousin. Really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. He never mentioned you. No, no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, talking about this, now, do you remember a beating up water pilot player giving you your best piece of information ever about your running career? Oh, obviously I do. It's stuck with me. It's a piece of advice that you gave me that I will never forget. Just remind me what it is. Well, it was at the Melbourne airport and you're on the way to a major event. Don't miss the flight. And I said to him, listen, mate, if you're going to do well in marathons, I'll tell you one good bit of advice. Do your shoelaces up. <laughs> you did. You did. And I've double-knotted my shoelaces ever since, and that's a true story. And I owe it all to Larry. It's nice that we've been able to publicly allow me to give you the recognition that you deserve. Exactly. I had to now, promote it myself, mind you. Now, Steve, I might, I have, I've got to ask you this. Uh, it, I've been, I don't know, I've been tossing whether to ask you or not. And don't take it personally because, you know, you, I did uh, qualify. It sounds like a bad question. No, it's not a bad <laughs> question. I think it's a very relevant question. Just ask me, sir. All right, I will. I'll fire from the hip. I've never been one to patronise or condescend or hide, shy away from the... Uh... You can beat around the bush, though. Well, I'm trying to beat around the bush because you're such a lovely bloke and I found it quite boring running 200k a week. Where did you meet your wife? <laughs> In the forest. <laughs> In the forest. <laughs> You wouldn't have met her over a drip tray like we normally do. <laughs> yeah. I, should have, I should have met her on the massage table. That's where I spent most of my time. Well, in the medical room at the physio. Well, that's what I, I mean. Where would you? Her, I met her at uni at a, 
I, truly, I was at a at a, at a band. I love my music. Actually, I, I know. I don't know if if it came down to it. I'm not sure if I if I tell you honestly. If um, running running's my most favourite thing in life, or um, or music, to be perfectly honest. What's your favourite music? What, what sort of music do you listen to? Oh, I love my Triple J alternative stuff, the National, Gang of Yous, um, yeah, that sort of stuff. I thought um, so. I, you know, I got, got to meet a few of my heroes, Mark Seymour. Oh, great. Yeah, great. Hunters and Collectors. Yeah, yeah I know. Hunters and Collectors. I, I have coffee with one of those yeah, guys the every Angels. day. I've got a great story about the Angels. Oh, the Angels are great. Yeah, I know the Angels. The Brewster boys. So, um, yeah, no, I've been able to just over the journey to meet a few of my heroes. Sad, Doc Neeson passed away. One of my used to travel around the c- country, Victoria, following Doc and um, the Angels. So I've got to meet those boys and just they're the great little things you know that lurks and perks you get along. When you say you followed them, did you? When you say you followed them, were you on foot? Or? Yeah, I was running. That's why I did all that training I did, mate. <laughs> do you know um, hundreds and correct uh, collectors? Do you know the whole band? Do you know Jeremy Smith? I don't. I, I I met them, the original guys. One of them was actually one of the brass um, guys from Ballarat, so um, I know his mum and dad. So um, there was a close connection with Ballarat as well. So I don't know Jeremy. Yeah, well, no, 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 yeah, well, he's a, is he a cousin of yours as well? No, he's no, no. He's a, another one. <laughs> he's a neighbour actually, but he, um, <laughs> he 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 wrote a lot of the songs. Hey, um, we could do it. We could do a whole podcast on people who don't mention you, Leo, but we don't have time. Oh, the family tree, you got no idea. There's some some cactus plants among them, let me assure you. But anyhow. I I was pretty quiet when he was talking about the Brandenburg. I'm still picking the cactuses out of my bum. Now, you know when you raise the Brandenburg wall? (laughs) In 89, when, of course, we talk about Perestroika and Glasnost and, and, you know, the derivative of the surname uh, Weegard, you probably don't need any subtle cryptics, do you? No, you no, figured it out. You put the first stone, didn't you? Uh, I, I, the first stone uh, in the Berlin Wall. Checkpoint <laughs> Charlie's his nickname. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Steve, um, now 61, you said you were not going to run any more marathons. Um, body's knackered. Um, have you got any outside athletic things on your plate? Um, yeah, Commonwealth Games is something close to my heart, obviously. And um, where are they going to be held? And hopefully, we can get another city for those. And you know, they were where I got my first start, and I've been involved with them. You know, over the journey, um, chef to mission, mayor of the village, and all that. So on the board now. So I'd love to see the future of the Commonwealth Games shored up because that's something that I think is really important for younger sports people coming through. You know, there's not many multi-sport events where it's such a focus on Australia and the public really endear themselves to Com Games. So I'd love to see that get back going. Um, so that's, you know, I do a lot I do a lot of community stuff, as you know, Leon yes, and Sam, and I love being involved. You know, I'm, I've got a little dinner here that um, Kathy Freeman's coming up and we're having a chat, just stuff like that. I, I get to involve myself in so many things, so many facets of society that I, I just, I love, um, I love giving back and, and I really enjoy, you know, I was a pretty shy, introverted kid growing up with pretty low self-esteem and I'm just loving how, you know, we talk about mental health and the benefits of exercise and a lot of things we're 
you know, we, we criticise the world a lot, you know, and we say how bad the things are, but, geez, there's a lot of great things happening out there, and I get to see a lot of that firsthand, and I'm so fortunate to be able to give back a little bit to the community that's been so good to me. Steve, just a quick one. Uh, you ran in an era where detection wasn't all that as... Uh, uh, probably as vigilant as it is today, but uh, mm -hmm. the situation with drugs, uh, do you ever feel as though you've been robbed because of it or was it prevalent during your your uh, career in marathon running or I'm sure there would have been some issues that were questionable? Yeah, there was a little bit. I never, again, you know, I'm so glad that I'm not running in this era because, you know, there's a lot of question marks over performances and things now, which is, makes me sad. When someone runs really well, the first thing... You sort of hear the public say, oh, well, you know, it's sort of guilty until proven innocent. Oh, that person must be on drugs. You know, and we never had that. We, And, you know, there was a bit of EPO around, I think. That was about the only thing that we ever really heard about, a, a bit of that in Europe through sort of the cycling connections over there mainly. Cool. But, you know, you look at guys like Deke and Derek and the era that I ran in, there wasn't so much of an African dominance. And I talk about someone like Douglas Wakahuri, who I've, you know, had great races with. Well... He was a Kenyan living in Japan, just, you know, following a Buddhist lifestyle, and that's just a fantastic combination. You don't need drugs to have success when you're born in Africa and then you live, you know, you've got the physical attributes of a Kenyan and the mental strength of a Buddhist monk from Japan, and he was almost unbeatable. So they were the drugs that we were on. It was just the drugs of, you know, being the best runner you could possibly be, working hard, having good support around you. And I love the era we grew up in and I wouldn't want it any other way. And if there were people that were beating me that were on drugs, then they're the ones that have to sleep at night. And for me, I sleep at night 100% well because I know I just got the best out of my body and at a time when I was rewarded pretty well and had some great successes and I wouldn't change a thing. Steve, now before the boss uh, winds us up, uh, Leon, uh, I just want to ask you, do you engage in a brief libation now? Do you have a quick? Um, yeah, I, we love our um, we love a, a drink, and uh, I've always been a pretty balanced person, so I don't I don't kind of. What's your drink on. of choice? What's your uh, what's your what's your preference? Well, I used to we used to love a, a red wine, you know. Well, no, okay, let me stop you there. Range, but um, we now we're on our craft beers now, so with Tanya and I love. I, I love my Guinness. So if I had to, if I had to, if I had one drink, I was on a desert island. I had one drink to take with me, and it'd be a, a pint of Guinness. Well, uh, Steve, let me stop you there. Pardon my intrusion, but uh, all our guests are always in receipt, as you know. Jerry Ryan's our wonderful host here, who also yes, owns uh, Mitchelton Wines and a host of other wineries half the world. And uh, our guest every week is in receipt of uh, we... Not quite in receipt. Not in... No, that's the issue. That's poorly phrased. I'll recant that statement. Uh, they are... They very rarely get them, Steve. That's what we're saying. <laughs> they are... They are... They are... Offered. Offered, uh, exactly, two bottles of wine from the... Uh, and some of the great reds of the world. Now, of course, <laughs> this... As, they are some uh, of the great reds of the world. And can I say, you don't need to... You don't need to... Um, Give me a gift or a present because I love chatting. And oh, no, no, don't start. No, 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 no. Please, Steve. Sam, so don't, don't Steve. Give, why don't you share those bottles of money in my honour? Steve, you're not listening to me. This, <laughs> we, don't need our, we don't need our level of benevolence or altruism recognised because the reality is, whilst it sounds great verbally, the reality is the distribution, which is in Leon's court, 
they never actually find their target. Because uh, Leon's garage is chock-a-block full of all these so-called offerings that we grant. So whilst they're lovely... <laughs> so whilst they're lovely words on your behalf, the reality is you wouldn't have got them anyway. But uh, no, you would, you would have. But next time we see uh, you, mate, enjoy the chat. Uh, Steve Monaghetti joining us on Sport and Life. Steve, thanks for your uh, for your time and uh, happy birthday, by the way, for the twenty sixth of September. That wasn't far away. No, sixty one. Happy birthday to Steve yeah. Monaghetti, and we'll catch you again real soon. And congratulations running that forty third. Well, you ran forty third. Oh, yeah, exactly. Barcelona. 43rd Barcelona. Thanks, Leon. Thanks, Leon. Thanks, Sam. Enjoyed the chat. See you, mate. Thanks, Phil. Bye-bye. See you later. Catch up soon. Cheers.